Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. Today marks the 10th anniversary of the LBJ play All the Way, which premiered in Oregon starring Jack Willis on July 28, 2012, before making its way to Broadway to win a Tony Award for Bryan Cranston. I spoke to Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright Robert Schenken when he brought his LBJ sequel, The Great Society, to Arena Stage in 2018. We are here with Robert Schenken, the playwright of not only All the Way, which was here a couple years ago, but now the, let's call it the part two, Godfather 2, <laughs> The Great Society, uh, now at Arena Stage. Thanks so much for joining us, sir. Thank you. It's great to be here. When you when you wrote this thing All the Way, this was way before it was, you know, Cranston on Broadway and uh, before Rob Reiner had done LBJ. I mean, um, your your interest in in reevaluating um, LBJ's legacy, um, I think, kind of planted. I think you planted a seed in society for us to kind of go back and reexamine it. What was it that made you um, back then want to reopen that that discussion? And- well, I uh, I grew up in Austin, Texas, and uh, in the Hill Country, so not very far from uh, where Lennon Johnson was born and raised. So it'd be pretty hard to avoid Lennon Johnson in my childhood, uh, mm-hmm. uh, including the fact that my father uh, knew him in a in a very small and um, fine way. My dad was a pioneer in public television and radio, and had been hired to come to the University of Texas at Austin and create the first public television radio station really in the southwest and uh, job number one was to go to then senator johnson and get his permission Mm -hmm. because said radio television station would have been in direct conflict with his own media empire or should i say ladybirds media (laughs) empire? not to be confused with the other lady because it was in her name um and uh i'm uh pleased to say that he not only gave his permission, but of course as president would go on to sign into law the bill that created the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. So in my family growing up, he was a friend of the court. He was a good man. And uh, my parents were both liberal Democrats, very supportive of integration. And, um, you know, I remember that uh, that election, 1964, LBJ Goldwater and uh, how it just felt, you know, Manichaean, forces of light against the forces of dark, and how thrilled we were with this landslide victory. And then just a year and a half later, with the troop levels in Vietnam having ramped up from 23,000 to 160, 170,000, and my oldest brother now facing the draft, I had a very different feeling about LBJ. Was he actually drafted, or he was just the prospect of it? He was not, um, but... uh, you know he was uh, he was eligible. Uh, fortunately, he had a high number. He drew a high number. 
uh, and was in college at the time. Um, so, uh, you know, I that's where I sort of got off the LBJ ship. And then years later, as a as an artist with a young family trying to make a go of it, I became aware of the domestic programs that he had created, which were actually extremely helpful to me and people like me, people that I knew, and I thought differently about him again. So he's always been in my head as this really interesting, truly Shakespearean character, not only big physically, you know, six foot four, whatever, 250 pounds, but big emotionally, big in his appetites, big in his virtues and his vices, um, uh, a Shakespearean character and someone who it seemed to me belonged on the stage. And, um, and if you're going to understand where we are today politically, I think you really need to understand LBJ. Uh, there are people who, who say, uh, uh, Joseph Calfano Jr., uh, among them that we live in the world that LBJ created. And I think there's actually some truth to that. So I, um, when given the opportunity on this commission by the Oregon Shakespeare Festival to, uh, actually the very first commission they offered for their American Revolutions project, I said I wanted to write about LBJ. And so began a very long process of uh, research and reading and uh, studying and thought, uh, culminating in all the way. What all did you, um, what all did you read? W- was there a specific biography? Was there uh, old speeches you went back and watched? I'm sure all of the above. Uh, I, I read everything I, c- I could get my hands on, and there's a lot out there. Certainly, every major biography about uh, Lyndon Johnson and his his own writings, uh, major biography on everybody, every major player in his administration who appears in the play. Um, histories on the Vietnam War, histories on the Great Society, um, a fairly comprehensive, I cast a wide net. And then I also uh, interviewed people. I talked to people who had served in his administration. I talked to family members. Um, and, um, and, and then, as you say, there is a lot of footage extant from this period. Television really comes into its own as a political force. Uh, and so there's a lot of, of that material available, as well as this is kind of the high point in American magazines. Newsweek, Time, Look, Life. Right. Um, every major city had at least two newspapers. So there was a, a wealth of material to sort through. In that regard, you're almost fortunate com- compared to if you were writing about, you know, a figure in the pre-TV era, you know, you had a wealth of uh, sources at your disposal. Um, remind our remind our listeners, let's say, let's say they didn't, they missed all the way when it was here, or they saw it, but you know, it's it's been a few years. Um, remind them sort of, you know, how how that was part one exploring you know the sure. trying to you know I guess it's it's after he's been elected and trying to pass the Civil Rights Act of '64, um, which is what the Reiner movie was about too. Um, but then also and then how this is uh, kind of sort of the the, the part two of that um, I guess exploring the remainder of his administration, the civil rights movements heating up. King is you know on a fatalistic path himself, and Vietnam is ramping up so that he doesn't even run again. Right. So um, for for those on on your audience who uh, who missed all the way, all the way, 
um, which won the Tony Award uh, in, in 2015, and then went several on, Tonys, right? At, at yeah. Multiple Tonys, yeah. uh, Best Actor that season as well for for Brian Cranston, and then went on to be a very successful Emmy-nominated uh, movie at HBO, which I also wrote. Uh, followed uh, the first term. Uh, Jack Kennedy is assassinated in Dallas, and Vice President Lyndon Baines Johnson suddenly becomes president um, with a year before the next election. And the question on everybody's mind is, what does Lyndon Johnson really want? Because Lyndon Johnson has played a very close political game all his life. To the liberal Democrats, he's a liberal. To uh, the Southern Demo- Dixiecrats, he's a good old boy, but what does he really believe? And uh, to everyone's surprise, it turns out that what Lyndon Johnson really believes in is civil rights. And so all the way follows um, his pursuit of the 1964 Civil Rights Bill, which was a landmark bill, uh, really changed the country profoundly while he simultaneously pursues re-election and election as president in his own terms. He succeeds, but already uh, the seeds of um, the looming crisis have been planted in Vietnam as he's already begun to ramp up troop levels there and to lie to the American public about what's going on. Um, The Great Society follows his second term, November 1964, on the heels of his historic landslide victory over Barry Goldwater, uh, which gives him control of both houses of Congress, Um, uh, culminating four years later um, in his shocking public television announcement that he will not run again for office. It's the end of his career. So if you think about this in, in, in classical terms, uh, classical theater terms, all the way is a drama. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Great Society is tragedy, um, in which this uh, individual who inarguably does so much good um, domestically, um, Medicare, Medicaid, education, clean air, clean water, um, three historic civil rights bills, multiple uh, appointments, just profound shifting of the society, and Vietnam. Um, And, uh, you know, it is, uh, he knew at the time that uh, his foreign policy was going to doom his domestic policy, and yet he he continued to march forward, and so it's it's so puzzling to, to consider that a politician so skilled, so smart, so shrewd um, could not find a way out of this box. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the consequences of those decisions, of course, we live with to this day. It's, it's really a tragic story. It's one of those where if you had come up with it as its own two-play thing, you'd be like, oh, that's far-fetched. But its truth is really strange. Like, it writes itself in a certain way. It's true. And, and of course, there are such uh, amazing people uh, in this story. Uh, Dr. King, of course, um, who finds himself, um, you know, the the highlight of his uh, long-standing career seeking justice 
uh, culminating in the 64 and 65 civil rights bills, and then the emergence of black power and the marginalization of the nonviolent movement. King comes out against uh, the war in Vietnam and is demonized in, very largely across the country and even within the civil rights movement uh, for doing so and then is assassinated in Memphis. Uh, Bobby Kennedy, who has uh, really finds himself finally after wandering in the um, political desert, um, seemingly in place to take the Democratic nomination, and then he also is assassinated, this time in Los Angeles. Uh, on the right, you have uh, the shocking uh, rise of Richard Nixon, seemingly uh, out of the ash can of political history, and he will, of course, be, uh, be elected twice yeah. to president. Um, but this this is his rise again. And uh, in the South, George Wallace. It's an, it's an extraordinary collection of, of individuals, uh, powerful people, uh, impassioned people um, in really desperate conflict. It's a very dramatic, chewy stuff. Pretty exciting. Lots to work with on your part. <laughs> lots, lots to work with, and uh, it makes for a really terrific evening in the theater. Now, how long after um, All the Way did you begin putting pen to paper on this one? Was it always, did you always conceive it as a, a two-play thing? No, or? I, I would have been very disappointed if, we'd, if I'd never been able to write what I can call a part two or the second part uh, of this story. And fortunately, uh, even as I was actually writing all the way uh, I was commissioned by the Seattle Repertory Theater to write uh, The Great Society. And, and honestly, when we won the Tony Award in uh, New York, the next day I and my director, Bill Rausch, flying back from uh, New York City to Ashland, Oregon, um, going over our notes for a great society run-through to be held that week. That's how tight these things were. It was a very exciting time. Awesome. Um, now we kind of we hit on um, for maybe listeners that missed it the first time, but let's say some of our, for our, but now for our listeners that did come out, they're in for a treat. It's a lot of the same cast. Jack Wills is back as uh, LBJ. Uh, Bowman Wright, who stopped into WTOP in studio last time around, and he, he's back as MLK. Um, was there... Was there ever any doubt that you'd try to cast at least most of the same people, at, you know, to keep the same cast, and how... I mean, is it a no-brainer? They enjoyed it so much the first time. They say, of course, anytime, anything you need, Robert. <laughs> well, it's such a great ensemble of actors. They're such extraordinary, talented individuals. The, the challenge, of course, is that they're in demand uh, as a consequence. So you, you hope you can get them all back, uh, knowing that that's, uh, that's a, a long reach. But in our case, we were extraordinarily fortunate. I think everybody really wanted to be back, uh, and particularly in this ensemble headed by, as you say, Jack Willis, who originated the role of LBJ in both plays and is giving, I think, the performance of a lifetime. It's really amazing. 
theater. This performance you do not want to miss. What is it about Jack Willis's performance? Because we've seen, I mean, do a little compare contrasting. It doesn't have to be one's better than the other, but just in different styles. Um, let's say Cranston, who I assume, I mean, he won the Tony, and so you work closely with him as well, um, versus Willis. Or even if, did you check out Woody Harrelson's portrait too? Like, kind of. Speak on sort of the different approaches. You know, I haven't I haven't seen uh, the Woody Harrelson movie, although I'm very eager to do so. Um, obviously, I'm very familiar with with Brian's uh, work, which uh, was fabulous and very justifiably honored. It's really hard to compare its apples and oranges. What I will say about Jack um, is that he brings a ferocity to the part and an intensity that is unrelenting. And in, in this part two, essentially, in the Great Society, ultimately a vulnerability that's shattering. So, um, you know, Brian never got a chance to play right. the Great Society, and neither has Woody. So this, this is territory that Jack has really carved out on his own, and it is an extraordinary – I mean, it's a – the role is like Lear in terms of its size, what it demands of the actor. You rarely leave the stage – um, and the emotional demands are, are are extraordinary, but Jack is just giving a magnificent performance. Don't don't miss this. If you see one thing this year, see Jack Willis in the Great Society. That's that's high praise right there. How about speak to to Bowman Wright a little bit? He actually before all the way was he played King previously here one time in a play called The Mountaintop. Then of course. All the way, and now he's back for his. Uh, I guess this is his MLK trilogy here. Um, what have you enjoyed uh, about watching his performance grow from the first time you did it here to now? Like as as you say, he and LBJ, uh, MLK and LBJ were more allies in the first one, and this one there's a little more tension over the war. They split completely. Um, it's a it's a tragic thing what happens to them. Uh, we're so fortunate to have Bowman. He's a uh, phenomenal actor. And uh, I have seen a number of people uh, uh, play this part, of course. And uh, I think uh, what he brings here, this such intelligence and uh, compassion uh, in, in this role. You know, I think American audiences, uh, if they think about Dr. King, um, they, I, they either think of him as the uh, orator or the martyr. And uh, what I have tried to do in the text here, and what Bowman so beautifully illuminates, is Dr. King the politician. He was an extraordinary politician. If you consider the task he had in front of him, um, the civil rights movement was by no means a monolithic movement. It was very fractured and fractious, each group headed by a very charismatic, <laughs> very powerful men who did not uh, share power easily. And somehow Dr. King found a way for many years um, to keep everybody more or less working in the same direction toward the same goal. And uh, that is the mark of a highly skilled, uh, very talented and extraordinarily hardworking and gifted politician. And um, and uh, Bo it just does a wonderful job with that, really bringing that to life here. Um, I want to know more about you. Uh, take it all the way back. Was it was it Carolina you grew up? Um, take me. I, I want to know how you know what theater or film or books or whatever interests you as a kid, and how you got into you know playwriting. 
I am a I am a Tar Heel by birth, uh, <laughs> but a Texan by adoption. I grew up in Austin, yep. and, and grew up and then went to school and went to college at the University of Texas. Um, my father uh, was a playwright, and my mother was a professional actress before uh, they got married. So I grew up in a house full of books and full of plays, and we went to the theater. So it was, seemed like a very natural thing um, to do. Um, I have been blessed uh, on occasion with a really extraordinary and important um, teacher. I guess one of the most important to me was a was a, a Polish uh, a professor who taught at the University of Texas from 1971 to 1975 uh, when I was there from the National School in Warsaw. And uh, from her, I got the best piece of advice I've ever gotten as an artist and, and maybe as a human being. Um, I was an actor then, um, primarily, and uh, my, uh, not a bad actor at all, but my problem was I could see the performance so clearly in my head, and then I would try <laughs> to be that. I'd try to make every bit of it. And uh, it just used to drive her crazy. And, and I remember in one class I finished a scene, and she just stood up and she said, Robert, Robert, you must leave something for God. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's, that's just such great advice, this, this notion that you cannot control everything. Right. Uh, on stage or, or off stage, and that one must make allowance. Uh, one indeed must welcome in uh, the unanticipated, the unexpected. Um, so I, uh, I started off uh, as an actor. I was going to be Orson Welles, act, write, and direct. Um, the directing <laughs> part never happened so much, but I did write from a very early age on. I lived in New York and Los Angeles and had a very successful career as an actor. But you didn't have a sled as a kid, do you? <laughs> <laughs> Named Rosebud. Uh, and, uh, but um, it, the, the writing eventually began to take over, and then I wrote a play called The Kentucky Cycle, um, which, of course, went on to win the Pulitzer. Yeah. Uh, and the experience of that uh, was so deeply satisfying. I thought, you know, this is really what I should be doing. Let's Before we go further, let's remind our listeners about that a little bit. Um, it, it sort of explored American mythology, Western mythology, um, over a series of plays. Were you inspired by August Wilson's Pittsburgh cycle, in, at least in the rollout? This is actually, you know, uh, August has just written two plays at that point. It's early on in that Early cycle, on, and yeah. in fact, as an actor... I'm at uh, the O'Neill Center when his very first play, Mulraney, actually gets uh, a public staging. So he's he he hasn't yeah, really right. begun to you know stretch, sort of happening at the same stretch time. his yeah. wings. So it's kind of happening at the same time. Um, it is a uh, it, it's nine short plays comprising six hours, normally produced in two parts. Um, following the uh, uh, the journey of three fictional families in the eastern part of Kentucky from 1775 to 1975. So it's a very ambitious, epic kind of piece, as you say, a look at American myth-making. What is it in Liberty Valance when the legend becomes fact, the, print the legend? A little bit of that? Something like that, perhaps. <laughs> I love it. Um, and then beyond that, obviously, we, we 
between there and all the way, you've done a lot too. But uh, even a little, a little screen. I mean, you mentioned Orson Welles. You've done a little screenwriting too. Hacksaw Ridge, The Pacific. Um, what draws you to? I mean, in here we're dealing with Vietnam. What you know? It's what's what deal? What draws you to not only the subject of war, but you know, reexamining these pivotal moments in our history. You know, I, I, I couldn't tell you the, the why of it, uh, except that it pleases me, it interests me. I, 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 I love history and would read it, uh, you know, just purely for my, my own pleasure. I do think that it's important. Uh, I, I do think that, that history is not something that, that just exists in the past. It lives through us continuously. We are continuously informed by and, uh, and moved by, oftentimes in ways we we don't understand or not even conscious of by history. And, um, and I think it's, it's so important to underst- in terms of being able to understand where we are to understand where we've been. So I'm with you entirely. I think the whole notion of time and past and present and future is, is an illusion. I think it's all happening right in front of our face, past is prologue, and we're, that's what's so great about Arena is we get to grapple with this, and it's, right. and it's alive happening now. Right. I, don't think it, I don't think it's something that existed in the past. You know? And then there are such wonderful stories. Uh, Hacksaw Ridge, uh, the true story of Desmond Doss, the first conscientious objector to win the Medal of Honor. This is such a such an amazing story. Uh, this this individual struggle uh, of conscience and patriotism, and, and the way in which he manages to to bring them both together, um, is so moving and so inspiring. Um, so whenever I get an opportunity to tell a story like that, I'm I'm the first one to to jump on it. I enjoy writing film. I enjoy writing television. These are indeed how I pay my bills. Um, but I, but even if they didn't, I would still do it because of the opportunities it affords me uh, to tell a big story in a big way, and and the opportunity to work with the people I've had a chance to work with. That's um, you know I currently have a of four different movies, any one of which or all of which could go into production this year. So I'm, you know, I'm very excited about the... You're allowed the, to give us a little the, teaser? The, the possibilities. <laughs> well, I, I, have a, I have a movie about uh, Vietnam called Fall of Saigon, which is about America's last days, literal last days in, in Vietnam. Um, I have a, a movie I've written for uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, uh, um, predicated on a little-known but uh, very compelling uh, historical event when the uh, 7th Cavalry threw down with the Klan in South Carolina uh, during Reconstruction. I'm writing a movie for uh, Bob Redford to direct uh, about the Manhattan Project, uh, and uh, and I'm working on a a contemporary piece about uh, high school sports in Texas. Wow. So, you know, it's a, it's a wide range of uh, stories and events and people with a fantastic group of talented uh, artists. I consider myself very, very fortunate to, to do what I do and to be here in Washington today on the eve of the opening of the Great Society with Jack Willis.
That's perfect. Uh, just sort of in closing, you, you mentioned that TV and film sort of helps pay the bills, but then you love getting to come do stuff like this on the eve of this. What's it been like working with the folks at Arena? I mean, this is it, I, twice with this material. Had you been here working with them in the past? Um, you know, I, I, I've known Molly Smith for a very long time before she even arrived uh, at Arena stage. And um, I have uh, had a number of pieces of red here developed or been commissioned by the arena and then now these two productions. Um, it's always a pleasure uh, to work at this theater. Um, I think it's, uh, it, you know, they have such a strong aesthetic, such high uh, standards, and the people are just so pleasant to work with. And very professional, uh, collegial group. And um, to do these plays about politics, about presidential politics, and ongoing foreign wars at this moment of time here in Washington, D.C., in front of Washington audiences, who I think are the equal of any audience in terms of sophistication anywhere in the world, is a real thrill. Absolutely. Well, if it's a thrill for you, it's a real thrill for us. So thanks so much for taking the time to join us. This was great. Pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for listening to Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. Our theme music is Scott Buckley's Clarion. Remember to give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear. We'll see you next time. wanted to take a second to tell you about an app I really enjoy. Living in the D.C. area is great, and Podcast D.C. gathers all of the local shows that I like all in one local app. Health, sports, local news, politics, and so much more. Podcast D.C. is the new local app with hundreds of D.C. area podcasts to choose from. I can earn exciting rewards just for listening and share the podcasts I love instantly. Available in the App Store or in Google Play, listen local with Podcast D.C.